Welcome back to Balagan. I'm Kobe Cohen. The Israeli disengagement from Gaza was a unilateral dis- dismantling of the 21 settlements in the Gaza Strip and the evacuation of the approximately 8,600 settlers and Israeli army from inside the Gaza Strip in August 2005. Even though most Israelis supported the plan, it has been criticized from various viewpoints by the settlers and the Israeli right, including a strong opposition within the Likud party, and by international organizations, including the United Nations, who still see the Gaza Strip as under military occupation by Israel, as Israel is still controlling Gaza's air and maritime space, six out of seven land crossing, and it also maintains a no-go buffer zone within the territory, and Gaza is remained dependent on Israel for its water, electricity, telecommunications, and other utilities. Who came up with the idea for the disengagement back in 2003? Why was the plan executed the way it was executed? And what did the decision makers thought will happen afterwards? My guest today served as a senior advisor to Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, and was the founding director at the Agency for Economic Development of the Arab Sector in Israel under Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. Currently, he is helping small and medium Israeli startups in accessing and succeeding in the U.S. governmental and military marketplace. I am glad to be joined by my dear friend, Oren Magnesi. So, Oren, welcome to Balagan. It's a pleasure to have you with me. I want you to tell us, you know, how you got in the first place to work with the Prime Minister Sharon? Well, Kobe, thank you for inviting me here. I've been listening to most of your uh, episodes, and I, it's an honor to be here, as they say. I ended up working with Sharon sort of by mistake, like a lot of stuff that happens in life. I was working for a youth movement called Beitar, which some of you may know, right wing, all the way from Jabotinsky to present day. And I was about to go into law school. I got into law school, and about 10 days before school started, and I wasn't a great student. I, was, I got in and it was a big deal for me because I wanted to study law. And I got a phone call from, this was September, 1999. So this kind of dates me, tells you how old I am. And I was just about to start and I got a phone call from a, a guy called Uri Shani, who was then Sharon's assistant and eventually became the director general of the Likud and eventually the chief of staff of the prime minister. And we clicked somehow. We were introduced by a member of Knesset, former Knesset Yol Hassan good friend of mine. And he said, why don't you go and try that? And I was in informal education and youth movements, and I wanted to be a lawyer. And this was not, you know, I love politics, but I had no idea. And we clicked and he took a chance on me. I keep, we still are very close. And I said, why did you do it? He said, he doesn't know. (laughs) But he said, there was something in you, the sort of loyalty. I don't know what he meant because we just met, but I ended up working for him. And 18 months later, five of us, all under 30, Sharon's like 14 started working at the Prime Minister's office, which was kind of amazing because you take this job, it looks like a nice, but this is a credible time. This was before the Intifada. This was when the could just got beat up, yeah. the elections. And a lot of things happened in those 18 months, including the election of Shekhatsav as, as president, which kind of gave the whole Likud much more energy going into the elections. Bibi was out and then trying to come back. This was fascinating 18 months and just a worth a whole conversation on just how you take Sharon, who was kind of the, yeah. the guy who was- as a buffer. The guy yeah. holding the key for Bibi, if you remember that picture yeah. of Netanyahu, you know, quitting on the night of the election after he lost, was the Sal Netanyahu and Arik Sharon in the background. And yeah. it was like handing the old dog the keys and he was supposed to guard the house until something else 
better happens. And he kind of surprised everyone. He surprised, I think, himself also. His wife died during that time. It was a very condensed 18 months. Yeah, but I think that Sharon was full of surprises all of his career. So you were there when he went to the Harabai, to the Temple Mount. Yeah. Right? In September 2001. Right. I wasn't there with them. There was a very small team. And we actually didn't think it was going to be such a big deal. If I had known, I'd probably want to go just to witness history. And they were there for a few minutes. This was a catalyst that we discovered later because Sharon was blamed for the Second Intifada's erupting. Right. But that wasn't the case. When the whole thing was coming to an end, they discovered a lot of documents that proved that not only they were preparing, they were funneling a lot of money for that moment. So while he was negotiating with Barack, Arafat was preparing for the, ne- for, for, the the next, for the next round of violence. Exactly. Yeah. And Sharon was a catalyst in a sense. And I don't think it was a good time or not, but it would have erupted anyway. He would have found another excuse. I think when you talk about surprises in Sharon, Sharon surprised mainly, I think, himself because he proved Sharon was a very passionate guy. The guy who would wake up every morning and say, who can I pick a fight with? <laughs> and I think it was sort of his coming of age, which came at the age of 70, right? He became prime minister at 73. Yeah. So that's a time where I think you get a little introspective about your life. And he said, what are the things that made me come here to this place where he wanted to go when he was 50 and was on his way? When he was uh, minister of defense in the 80s, he was 50 years old. The prime minister was for him to take. And he botched it. He botched it because of many reasons. Uh, you know, he had a lot of political yeah. enemies. He made a few mistakes, though he thought he didn't. He had to reconcile with a lot of that. And he changed. Sharon changed the way he deals with people. Because I heard all those horror stories about him, how he used to be this really difficult person to work with. And I have to say that he's probably the most human politicians I've ever met. He's the kindest person to his uh, staff. He raised his voice once. Not really on me, because he had this thing where if he would be in the office with someone and he wanted to yell at that politician who was coming in, he would yell at his assistants. And the thought going through the politician's head that if he can do that to his assistant, what is he going to do to me? Right. right. <laughs> he was kind of psychological. <laughs> it was very funny to see. And he thought it was kind of shaking because it was very, you know, was, and I didn't sort of see it the way I see it now. And he you know, brought me close and apologized, made me feel better about the whole thing. It was like a grandpa to us. I mean, it was very, very fatherly. And we were young. We were in our 20s. So and he loved our energy. So, yeah, so he did a lot of different things to become prime minister. And he did a lot of things different when he was prime minister. And I think the ability to change at that age is sort of the answer to the disengagement plan as well. We spoke about going up to the Temple Mount. And now we're reminding uh, the second intifada. Sharon was remembered as the, we can call it the godfather of the settlements. Right. the West Bank in Gaza. He was one of the strongest forces supporting the settlement movement starting the 60s, but mostly from between the 70s and the 90s, and actually all the way to the beginning of the 2000s. So what happened along the way? Well, the settlers, actually, when they reflect on it, they said, we knew that that was in him all along. Because Sharon was an ideologue in a sense that he wanted Israel strong, He wanted Israel competitive. He wanted Israel to achieve what it could. After the Six-Day War, he was one of the individuals that identified the potential of, because, you know, Israel started, it was like, let's just start this and see how we move along and how that works. But it was a the very, it was, it was a, the first startup, but it also in, in terms of its strategic depth, it, you know, what was it from the narrowest part of Israel was then was yeah. about nine kilometers, which was really crazy. I mean, it's not... Yeah. 
uh, or nine miles, sorry, nine miles. Like nine 17, miles. 17 yeah. kilometers. 17, yeah. So that was unsustainable. And I think that he wanted to accomplish a lot. And he was very good at doing things, okay? He wrote a lot of op-eds. I think that's how he got to be known here in the United States because he wrote a lot of op-eds. But that's to the extent that he was doing the writing or speaking, using the narrative. He was a guy that created a narrative or influenced the narrative through doing. And he was very good at getting things done. He had this sort of notebook, which became a historic artifact later on, right? And a lot of those lost. There was a big fire at his ranch and a lot of them got lost, but he, he used to do shorthand of a lot of things. And we turned this, when we went to the primary's office, you know, like years later into a system where he would say, you've committed to something. He's one talk to one of the bureaucrats. You've committed to something. What has happened since then? And they knew they were going to get that question. So he would write down stuff and he wouldn't count on other people holding the bureaucrats accountable. He would do it himself. And that proved very effective when he wanted to build settlements. It proved very effective when he, they didn't know when he was going to show up at some construction site in the settlements or a road that's being paved and talk to the contractor as he's doing the job. He says, who, you know, are you getting paid on time and all that? He had a lot of self-discipline. And I think that self-discipline kind of propelled a lot of the stuff he wanted to do. When he wanted to build settlements, he would break it down. He would sit with the map and he, his knowledge of geography was of Israel, the land yeah. of Israel, so sort of a larger concept of it was incredible. When he was flying over with his helicopter, he would point out places just by seeing it. And that's very hard to do. If you've done a few navigation, it's like just remembering the, the, the topography. He, yeah. It was really uh, uh, incredible. And he knew all of it. And the thing that changed, I think, the settler says that as soon as he stopped believing that that's sustainable, that that's going to make Israel stronger, he would fold it up as quickly it was built. So the surprise wasn't really there for them. And they said, they said, we knew that Sharon was not a hardcore ideologue. He did great many things. His ideology was Zionism, okay? He was a right-wing as, as an activist in his mind. He wanted to put a big emphasis on defense. There was a lot of drove, but he's done. And again, he said something famous, which is now being quoted as something that's sort of like, you don't have an ideological backbone, but I disagree with that completely. He said, whatever you see from being a politician climbing up the ladder and being a politician who sits at the prime minister's office and looks at things, it looks different. In Hebrew, it sounds better. Yes. And that's true. And to say I've changed my perspective is something that either you can admire or you can say, well, so why did you sold us on all this stuff? Sharon saw a few strategic dangers. Okay. You have to remember, this was the time where Republicans were as adamant in getting a peace agreement as Democrats. Bush and Condi Rice and all the team, they were much more effective in pushing Sharon than than Obama to Netanyahu or even Clinton to, to the rest because they were pro-Israel. You know, they were a, a party that supported Israel. Bush gave Israel a lot of credibility and in terms of a lot of credit in doing the things that they wanted to do. When you look at the Second Intifada, back to Sharon many, many times and finding the terrorists. And so when they pushed for it, Sharon realized that either you're going to get sucked into something you don't want there was the Geneva Accords, which you remember, which is a group of, it wasn't a formal negotiation, but it was someone uh, right. like Yossi Bailing, who we not really remember as someone who was a great leader, but he had a lot of influence. He was sort of the backstage and he designed Definitely. a lot of things. And Sharon identified that. And Sharon also started seeing a lot of groups in the Israeli society, which he thought were the backbone. You know, there were a bunch of pilots who wrote letters saying, well, we're not going to keep doing this. And Sharon 
when he was the prime minister, there's no English word for it, mamlakhti. There really is no term for this. He thought of the kingdom. He saw himself responsible for everyone and not just the people who voted for him in the deepest sense. It's not even looking presidential. I don't think that's the equivalent of looking presidential. It's something that he's now responsible for everyone. His party matters, and it did, and it changed a lot of the way he behaved. You know, it influenced a lot of his behavior, but, but he has to serve the larger, uh, the the larger population. The establishment, to him, it was the country. And I remember when we came in, we were all Beitar kids, so we were all ideology and all that. And I remember Uri said to us, you guys with your Jabotinsky, because he wasn't a Beitar guy, he grew up somewhere else. And he said, that's all fine and well, but you have to remember, not all the answers are in that book, and you have to look at things and serve everyone, even the people who didn't vote for us. And that was the first thing that we learned. And we were hardcore ideologues. I mean, we came to work with Sharon at a very young age, because a lot of the Kudniks, were, you know, for many years, they weren't in power. So they had the privilege of not making any decisions or not being part of any processes. Before I was 30, I was faced with giving up on something that I believed in. You know, I was the head of the settlement department at the Beitar Youth Movement. I've sent hundreds of kids to spend almost a year before their military service. And I spent almost a year near Hebron, you know, volunteering there. And like, this was... Yeah, so and doing community service and helping out and the, for, the and settlements and all that. Zi- and it was, for you it, it was Zionism. To me, it was, and, you know, whatever I believed in from a young age. So that if you want to focus on the thing that's changed, I think that he saw a few strategic dangers. He didn't want Israel to be led into something. He realized that the 8,000 people living in the Gaza Strip. In the heart of 1.5 million Palestinians at that but time. But you have to remember, these people the finest Israelis we've had. A lot of the time that weren't under constant peril, ebbed and flowed in terms of the violence coming and going. And, and it was a beautiful place. I mean, if you visited there, it's, it's a beautiful place. A lot of people knew it through their military service because they all have a forces in there that needed to keep it safe. So it was a big decision. But when he looked at the strategy, I think what went through his head is to say, and this is what happens to prime minister when they're at that age. And I think that they've been in power for a long time. He was in power for five and a half years which looks like a little time when we compare it to Netanyahu. But a lot of things happened. It happened to Ben-Gurion. I think it happened to a lot of other prime ministers. I'm so able and so capable. I am the prime minister. And I look at all the others and they all look like little politicians. How will they ever replace me? And it's a very human thing because when you start serving as the prime minister and you have power and you see your ability to do things grows with time as you become more experienced, you look at all the others who are vying for your position and they're saying, what can they do? And Bibi has made it into an art form. The current prime minister made it into art form saying, who can replace me? Who can perform? Who can narrate as well as I do? And Sharon saw and said, like, none of these folks are going to make hard decisions. And if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. And I don't care. And I know historically speaking, I will be remembered as someone who made the decision. And if we want to judge this engagement, we have to wait another 20 or 30 years to see what happened. We can't say it was good or bad at this point. I would reluctant to say, and every historian will tell you that you don't, judge history after 15 years. It's just very hard to see that, even if it's comfortable for some politicians to say, well, look at what happened. It's Sharon's fault. It's not our fault. It's not our lack of leadership. It's not our inability. It's not our sort of acceptance of Hamas as the, you know, because they kept saying, we'll destroy Hamas. Bibi said it many times. We'll take them out. We'll dethrone them. That never happened. That would require a lot. It would require a very tough decision. But let's dive into into some more details, if you'd like. There's a lot to talk about. Yeah. So, You're mentioning the Bush administration, and actually, as a part of President George Bush's vision, 
from 2002, he actually presented the roadmap, right? Yeah. And that was one of the biggest, I would say, uh, leverages on Sharon's administration. On the other hand, if we are talking about the Second Intifada, the Second Intifada was a really bloody period of time in the history of Israel. I think in overall, we had almost 2,000 people died in a really short period of time. And if we're focusing on the Gaza Strip, it was a really hard place to defend. Those 21 settlements were all across the Gaza Strip, which is really narrow and long. And every second day, we would hear about somebody die in Gaza from terrorists against civilians or from attacks against the army or was protecting the civilians. Nobody could leave their houses, you know, without any military escort. It was really insane. I mean, a lot of families died in the Gaza Strip and a lot of people were asking themselves, how can people live in those terms and endangering themselves and their families like that? So there was a lot of pressure. People, I would say that they had less sympathy for Gaza and more sympathy for the West Bank, or you would say that was not a consideration for Sharon? Sharon's considerations were strategic. He said, Gaza, strategically speaking, and it's kind of funny to say this when, when rockets are landing from it, but has less strategic value. If you think of 3,000 rockets coming out of the West Bank, that's a terrifying notion. And that's something that could really tear down Israel if that was the case. And I think we have to remember, like, we are after four years of President Trump, who is a good friend to Israel, who's supportive of Israel, and it's something that's hard to take away from him, regardless of everything else. And we're after 13 years of Netanyahu's prime minister, who was able, with great talent, fend off a lot of political initiatives on the Palestinian issue. And it seems like there's no consequences for living in conflict for such a long time. And we only get these reminders once every few years that we could actually disrupt our lives. It could change the way we see our country. But back then, it wasn't such a clear cut. You understood that amongst your friends, there are people who are saying, well, we don't think you should be controlling millions of Palestinians. It's not good for you, and it's not good for them, and it's never going to go away. And I think that Sharon realized that even Bush, who was a great friend of Israel, very supportive of us, and at the right moments, you know, with Olmert after attacking the nuclear reactor in Syria, you could really see how much he was committed to Israel. He said, this is not going to work. So there were a few things, you know, Roadmap was just the last of them, and it didn't succeed. And Sharon was looking at the Palestinian leadership and says, they're not like us. When we started a government, when we established Israel, we already had a government in place. We already had institutions in place. They even after acknowledging the Palestinian Authority and giving them some certain international status, they weren't up for the job. They were not able to deal you know, with the factions. They weren't able to administer a government, which is the basics. If you want to give them the keys, you know you got to hand it to someone who's responsible, because otherwise it's going to come back to you. Right. So he realized that when you looked at Gaza without the pressures, the value of keeping 8,000 people in Gaza, that's probably what you could have done. Maybe you could have doubled that number, but it would still be a drop in the bucket comparing to the complexity and the amount of people who live there who don't want you there and will keep coming back for you. Having two kids, I think putting them in an armored bus every day and sending them to school, knowing that they're being, this is something that requires, I mean, I admire the people who are willing to do this. They're willing to sacrifice everything. 
It's against literally human, it's, everything. It's against human nature to do that. Yeah. And you need a very deep religious belief to do that. And I think it doesn't apply to most people. And I think in some ways right. you admire these people who are willing to sacrifice for the greater good. But I think Sharon realizes it's not for the greater good. If we do this by ourselves without any international pressure, we do it because we want to. It'll buy us a lot of room to maneuver and sort of shape how Israel looks and the borders that matter to us in the West Bank and the fact that there's some major, major Jewish settlements that are already part of Israel in a sense. You know, hundreds of thousands of people who should be there, who have a strategic value in being there. And that's, and that's the price we have to pay because Gaza was never going to be a win. 8,000 people in Gaza was unsustainable. And we can say, well, Israel is a drop in a bucket with a million Muslims around us. It's the same thing. But as someone who's from the center right, I don't take that to the extreme. Okay. I do think that we have to give up on something to live in Israel, but not everywhere when we're losing stuff that is sustainable, that is, that is strategic, like the West Bank. I hope that answers your question. So 2003, a couple of months after President Bush presents the roadmap, Prime Minister Sharon comes up with a disengagement plan from the Gaza Strip. What was it exactly and what happened afterwards? So in terms of timeline, the first whiff of the disengagement came through a Yoel Marcus op-ed. It wasn't an interview he gave. It was something that he mentioned through his conversations with Sharon, that if the roadmap is not going to work, then they're going to do something that's unilateral and depends only on the decision of Israelis and not based on some international agreements. Because remember, the roadmap was backed by the quartet. It was an international move. I mean, if you say no to it, there were repercussions, not just with the United States, but with the rest of the international community. So I think that seed was sown even before that and saying, well, we know they're coming because, you know, when they came out with a roadmap, this was after discussions between the two administrations and they tried to, of course, influence it that way. And it was another chance. And I think Sharon was building a case to say, well, you know, whatever we try, it's not going to work with them. They're not ready to take responsibility. Now, the whole issue of Hamas controlling the Gaza Strip, this was something that was never anticipated because no one would have let it happen. According to Sharon, Fadakh was strong. They had the agreement with Israel. The agreement is not between the Palestinian Authority. The Oslo agreements are the between, Oslo are, are between with the, the PLO, with the PLO right. and the State of Israel, right? So those are the ones in power. Those are the ones who are being relinquished power by Israelis and have a lot to gain. And why would we ever let Hamas come in and take a bite of that? Sharon never occurred to him that that, that would the Americans want. Bush's explanation for 9-11 is that there was no freedom and democracy. And that's what happens. And it was a partial explanation to what to 9-11, but it wasn't the whole explanation. True. Freedom, diversity of opinions, respecting minorities, respecting other views, secular governments, all those things, they do affect the way that societies behave. But enforcing them and saying, well, democracy, just choose whoever you want. You need the nature of democracy. A liberal democracy is a democracy that exists not just because there's elections, right? So when you apply this on the Gaza Strip or the West Bank, you have yourself a big unknown that ended up in a very bad place. And Hamas gaining the power, they're not saying, well, we played by your rules and we're the majority. So we're going to make decisions now and you have to accept it. And then they can keep playing, being a terrorist organization once and being elected government on the other side, even if they don't recognize, right? They are the majority. And the reason they didn't want elections now is because Hamas is going to probably win again. So Sharon wanted to keep the initiative, okay? He knew that the Palestinian side could not be trusted on few levels, and he wanted to keep the initiative. That was the sort of preamble to saying yes to the roadmap. 
And he knew eventually that the roadmap means also disengaging from some areas in the West Bank as well. And he was unwilling to sacrifice the West Bank. Well, the Americans were on the ones who said, well, if you're going to disengage, they realized Sharon's was onto something, but he was trying to keep the initiative and he was kind of moving the initiative to the Israeli side, not the world demands of us things that they think we should do. But he says, we're going to disengage. So they insisted on adding those few settlements at the North West Bank to say, well, this is a move that has to do with everything, right? So they picked out a few of those very small settlements who were not strongholds. They were actually the ones that if you're thinking about a long-term where you separate as many Palestinians as many Jews or many Israelis within the West Bank, those would have to be relocated. They were moving these four so we can keep Ariel, so we can keep Kushetzion, so we can keep Maledomim, all those large settlement areas that have hundreds of thousands of Israelis living in there. And what are mostly urban kind of settings? These are not, yeah, not you yeah. know, remote settlements. These are not a uh, handful. Yeah. And remember, like, I spend a lot of time there during my military service and after. And I can tell you that a lot of these small settlements had a handful of families. The cost of keeping them there, just want to make sure something is very clear. All this land belongs to the people of Israel. I think there's no other nation that has such a documented and such a deep connection to its land. So this is not saying in any ways we're occupiers in our own land. This is about the government, the state that we've created. That's the goal. That's the that's our biggest value. That's the thing we want to retain and preserve. And you will have to make sacrifices. Sacrifices like this have been made throughout the Zionist history, even before Israel was established. And that was one of those sacrifices. Now, again, people on the extreme right don't see it this way. They're saying everything is everything. And if you compromise on one, you've compromised on everything, which proves itself to be untrue, but it sounds good, right? You want to be a person of principle. It sounds great on the paper, but eventually I would also argue, but that's for another episode, that the religious settlers are coming more from a messianic approach and less from a Zionist approach. I mean, Zionism was more pragmatic, but that's definitely for another episode. So I want to ask you now, Arik Sharon, you know, this bulldozer, the godfather of the settlements, declares that we're going to disengage from the Gaza Strip and those four settlements in north of Sumeria. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? How it was accepted by all of his allies, political allies? Well, it's hard to see it this way, but most of the leadership supported Sharon. I mean, they would love for you to forget about this, but most of them said he's a great leader. He is extremely powerful. He knows how to handle the president of the United States. He can say no. He can exercise power. The guy knows what he's doing. And for example, from our staff, there was just one person who quit over ideological differences. And he was a religious Jew with ties to the settlements. He's a great guy who I love working with, but he came in and says, I can't keep working for Sharon. He was the only one. He wasn't part of our initial group. He came in later, but no one says, oh, I can't accept the base. They realize as you see him making decisions, he said, if he's doing this, this is incredibly painful. This is our people. This is the people we supported. This is part of us. This might be some of us in there, right? And we had to go and say to them that that's over, that this is for a greater good. This is for saving the settlements in, in Judea and Samaria, which is what Sharon's biggest intention was. The acceptance, the international acceptance, and especially the American acceptance, that there will be changes on the ground, as it was described, meaning that there are settlements that will never be relocated. That the, in the United States, even though that the historic position of the State Department was that this is an occupied territory and 
they will have to be relinquished at some point. Sharon was able to change not just the opinion of one prime minister, was able to change the opinion of the institution, of the State Department. State Department has a policy that's been going on since 1967. It's still there. You're seeing it coming back now. It's never going to go away. They're indoctrinated that way. And they're basically on international decisions, which are mostly not in the favor of Israel. They're basing themselves on the sort of the international consensus, which is not a democracy. It's a bunch of interests cobbled together. And, and that's why Israel gets hammered so hard in international forums, fora, I should say. And it's just, you were able to actually influence. So if the establishment of the United States foreign policy said, we understand that there have been changes on the ground, that Israel is indefensible in the 67 borders, that's the biggest achievement. And that achievement has been almost squandered. Because if you have close to 435 members of Congress and almost 100 senators sign a letter, it's a non-binding resolution, but it was a decision that says that we accept that there are things on the ground that have changed. This was the big get. This was the big thing that we were able to accomplish with this engagement, is to say, no, when we annex and and Ariel, all those big settlement blocks, they're going to be recognized internationally, which is something that's a big deal. If you think what the Palestinian national movement has accomplished and what the Jewish, the Zionist movement has accomplished over 100 years, you see that we were able to get the governments of the world, the international community, to accept that there will be settlements that will become part of Israel. This is our ultimate goal from a political international standpoint. It's not saying we don't care about what the world thinks. If you live in Ariel, you're part of Israel and you're accepted there. And the seventh university we have there is an Israeli university and it's not being boycotted. And all the wonderful technology that comes out of there can be used. You can get grants from the European Union. You can get grants from the United States. And they're part of what we do. There's just one little component, you know, accepting academic institutions that are there. They're living under a certain type of military rule, which is in, in Israel, it's kind of, it's called Minhal Ezrahi, which is exactly the opposite. It's run by the military, not by, by civilians. But it's taking those hundreds of thousands of people who are Israelis living on legitimate claimed land of Israel and if we annex them, the international community is going to understand because we got out of Gaza, we evacuated a few more settlements, we relocated a few more settlements, and the Palestinians have a, what's called a viable, I wouldn't call Palestinian state, I think we're not going to have a Palestinian state in our lifetime. I think there's going to be some sort of entity that will eventually learn to control and manage itself in a way that's acceptable, okay? Because the first thing they have to do is show themselves and us that they can manage themselves. Well, we can keep living in a dispute, but if you think about it, there's two parts of us as Israelis, right? There's a part of us that says, we'll have to do things despite of what the world wants. And there's another part of us that says, we want to be part of the world. And this is something that throughout the Zionist history, there's something that's always been tugged and pulled together, right? And you want it to be accepted as part right. of the world, but there's part of us that wanted to be, feel that we are part of sort of the nations of the world. The world and of the nation. Well, yes. And part of it is saying, well, there'll always be anti-Semites there. And they'll make decisions against us and they'll attack us and they'll try to kill us or they'll try to defame us. And that's never going to change because we're Jews and they're anti-Semites and that's how it's going to work. So we kind of have to walk the line between those two things. And I think Sharon was able to say, we're getting the institution, the foreign policy institution of the United States to accept the fact that the changes made on the ground with a huge amount of settlements and settlers is going to be accepted as part of Israel when it happens. But for that, everything else has to happen. Gaza had to be relinquished with all the terrible things that that took. And that was the value. That was the value for uh, the long-term strategic value that Sharon saw. 
And Sharon was also, he believed in initiating. He never waited for somebody else to right. initiate for him and to make the decision for him. Uh, just like he did when he supported the settlements. That's how he went to the disengagement plan. And we also need to remind the audience that Sharon was the big constructor of the Israeli West Bank barrier. They started building it throughout the period of the Second Intifada. And some people will say that that's the future border, by the way, between the future Palestinian entity and the state of Israel. We made a but, point of saying this is not a political border. It's a security barrier. It's a security barrier, but some people say that it, you know... They could be based on that. There's a lot of parts of it that are too complex to become a practical border. Especially um, in Jerusalem. Not just there, but I mean, the intention was... See, because you can keep running the Palestinian theater, if you want, by saying, I will get what I can get and I'll adjust to any external political pressures and I will just keep building and change the reality. The thing that the element that terrified the hardcore settler movement, the, the extremists, what terrified them was that Sharon wanted to finalize the borders. He wanted to bring us one step closer. I'm not sure if he would have made it, but he wanted to finalize the borders in a sense that says, this is where we're going to be. This is where we're not going to be. And even if it's not a Palestinian state, it's some sort of entity, self-managed entity, we're not going to keep building there. We're not going to put more resources there. We're going to focus on what we are going to retain. We're not giving up on the right. We're giving up on the practical element of it, of basically being there. But, you know, it's the whole essence of Zionism. Where do we stay and where do we relinquish, right? What do we give up? Right. And I think that Sharon's intention was to finalize because if you have a security border, which can be somewhat transitioned into a political border, and you know that you're not going to be in Gaza. Gaza is like the southern Lebanon border, okay? There's a very annoying and harmful enemy. I mean, they can't take us down, but they'll disrupt our lives. There's a way to dealing with them, okay? Without hurting the population to a degree that's immoral with all the constraints. And that's how we treat it. But the West Bank is, we live very close to the Palestinians. We want to create separations. But if you see what's the conversation been going on since and say, no, no, we can live under the same roof, right? Even after there's a pass. So Israelis can live under Palestinian rule as Israeli Palestinians, Israeli Arabs or Israeli Palestinians with Israeli citizenship who live under Israeli rule. And that's just fine. That's the equivalent. To me, this was like a Kosovo Balkan kind of situation Definitely. because we're not talking about two democracies. You're talking about an entity that has come together and to say, well, we're just going to keep them. And if there's problems, we'll just send the military in. So, I mean, the only thing you need to do to disrupt this arrangement is keep attacking settlements and having the Israeli army military come back and breach again and again sort of the, you know, very minimal sovereignty right. of whatever entity that's going to look like. So, to me, the answer is still a separation. And Sharon wanted to make it clear, Israelis need certainty. There's so many parts of our lives that don't have certainty. And I think that's one of the biggest part of them that you don't know where Israel starts and begins. Most Israelis have never been to the West Bank. I've been to every part of the West Bank in Gaza. I can tell you some beautiful pieces of land. Most of it is vacant, by the way. When you fly over the West Bank, you see that it's a lot of it is empty. And you say, well, you know, there's room for everybody. But the question is, how do you run regular life? Especially, Especially if you are the minority in the West Bank, just like we were in Gaza, and we want to keep straight, and the Zionist vision is to have a thriving uh, nation for the Jewish people. So thriving nation, a Jewish majority. majority and not yeah. the minority. Exactly. 
I think if you came to the Israeli people, and, and this is what terrifies the extremists. If you come to the Israeli people and he says, we can have 80% of the settlements, okay? And keep all the land that they're on, okay? Be legitimized by the world. Annex that, not establish a Palestinian state. Just saying, this is where we're going to be. And this is a disputed area that will be left for negotiations where there's someone to negotiate with. I think most Israelis would say yes. Okay, because we're now fighting on the 20% that keep expanding in places that are becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And again, this is a land that belongs to Israelis and to Jews historically. So I'm not making the argument against the right. I'm making the argument for, I would say, the majority. I think that they've made so many great accomplishments in establishing a wider Israel in the sense that it's not this sort of um, skinny little piece of land that's very hard to defend. And settlements and big settlements incredibly help to do that and sort of the strategic depth of Israel. If you talk to the extremists and you'll ask them what they really want, they said, we're going to get everything. And we're just like the Palestinians. They believe they'll outlive us, we'll believe we'll outlive them. And eventually one of us is going to get kicked out. It's a very appealing and a very tempting thought to think that if you just kept going hard enough and long enough, eventually, because you're strong and you're going to win and they're all going to be gone. And I think that if you brought it to sort of the saying, well, do you think they're all going to go away if we just keep doing it? I think the answer would be no. And I think if Netanyahu was a brave leader, he would say, yes, we can keep 80% and have the world accept it. Not just us, the world accepting that, something they've never accepted before. Significant parts of the West Bank belong to Israel and are no longer disputed. That's an accomplishment that in 13 years Netanyahu haven't brought us one step closer. And I'm saying this is a member of the Likud, who may be one of the only people in the party who thinks differently of him. I'm saying this is someone who's part of who that stayed in the Likud, Who stayed in the Likud and thinks differently. <laughs> yeah, we're not very popular. I mean, we're not the majority yet, but I think we're coming back. I think eventually after Netanyahu leaves one way or the other, there'll be a place. We, we did it, Sharon did a big mistake leaving the Likud. I want to ask you one last uh, question because our time is almost up. So the disengagement was executed, I think, if I remember correctly, from August 15th, and it ended in September 11th of 2005. Mm -hmm. Eventually, no casualties. Most of it was quiet. Even the settlers and the settlement movement to say that there's going to be civil war, but it's different term in Hebrew. Right. It has a different meaning, a deeper meaning in Hebrew. The war of the brothers. Yeah. So what were the biggest outcomes of the disengagement? I mean, eventually we had the rockets was fired uh, from the Gaza Strip from 2001. So it's not that the disengagement brought the rockets to the Gaza Strip. But I want to ask, you know, from your perspective, what were the biggest outcomes of the disengagement? You know, on Israeli society, you know, international-wise? Well, unfortunately a lot of the value of disengagement has been squandered, both politically, domestically speaking, and both internationally. Because when we came out, we said, if you behave yourself, so to speak, there is an airport and there's a seaport and there's international development. We're talking for the average American listening who's never been to the Gaza Strip. It's one of the most beautiful beaches on the world. It's undeveloped mostly. And it's beautiful. It's almost pristine. 
and you're thinking about the opportunities. It's really serene. It's an un- yeah, yeah. It's you a, wouldn't you wouldn't think you're living in a war zone if you walked on the beach. Yes. Now. I mean, on a good day, right? Yeah. And I think that when you look at the possibilities, you know, in Tel Aviv, you can't get a piece of a shoreline anywhere. I mean, it's impossible unless you're, you know, a billionaire. And I think you're thinking about all that amazing opportunity for agriculture, for tourism, for everything. And you're asking yourself, well, for the first time, maybe in history, Palestinians have been left alone there. Sure, they don't control the border because we couldn't allow it at that point. But at a certain point, you could have had arrangements. You could have had the Egyptians on one side and us on the other side and stream people through and materials going in and out, commerce going in and out. And they blew it. This is really the equivalent of us having declared a state and getting the world to say, well, we, they're acknowledging the acceptance and accepting the existence of Israel. And the first thing we would do is attack our neighbors instead of building. What we wanted to do is build. This is where it's hard for me as an Israeli to say to the Palestinians, I support any kind of your cause. Yeah, because you're miserable and you're stuck there. And Gaza has been occupied by many, many forces throughout history. We left. The first time in history you've had an opportunity to manage your own lives. And think about what the world would have done if that was the approach. But they didn't have a liberal democratic culture. It's very different from our perspective. So they elected a government that their claim to fame says, we won, we ran the Israelis out. Which, you know, if you look at things without context, you say, well, yeah, they left because they didn't like the terrorism, right? But that wasn't the reason we left. You know, I was asked in the Knesset, I was Sharon's liaison to the Knesset, and, and I had to answer some tough questions there on his behalf. Ask, what is the purpose of the disengagement? And this again is to say, to minimize the friction between Israelis and Palestinians. We never promised peace. This is the thing that they're saying. They say, oh, you always said, shalom, peace for territory, right? You gave them territories, you didn't get peace, but that wasn't the context. That was saying, this is a longer journey, okay? You're not making an agreement with anyone because there's no one to make an agreement with. So I've seen the congresswoman that represents the district relocated to the United States, uh, at least until the end of this year, and she says, well, uh, we should oppose uh, state uh, violence that's coming from Jerusalem and from American cities who acted against African-Americans in a terrible way. And they sort of equated that. And I said to her, like, this is complete ignorance on her part because she doesn't know the history. We left that piece of land. We left that. And they could have self-managed it. And the world would have poured billions of dollars on them. And that was squandered. We don't make that point every single day. We left it and they ruined it. And until they change how they manage themselves, there will be violence. If what they spend their money on and their time on is this building tunnel. rockets and tunnels, trying to destroy and kill us, that just tells you how unready they are in any other sense. The world should be putting pressure on them. They're saying, this is an opportunity. This is not the West Bank. That's when you say, well, there's a checkpoint. You know, every other crossroad, right, is a checkpoint. No, that's not the case. They have it from the north, north to the south. The reason that there's no open border with Egypt, the Egyptians know it. They know that they can't allow it as well. So is it their fault? What stops the Egyptians from opening up the border? There's no pressure on the Egyptians to do that, and I wouldn't pressure them. But in terms of principle, that's one thing that's not said internally. Instead of saying, we did this to gain advantages, and these are the advantages, the amount of settlers in the larger blocks has grown incredibly. And this is based on agreements with the Americans. The Americans will not pressure us. And this cut through except for the nine months of Selman freeze with Obama, Obama was actually one of the president who presided over one of the largest expansions of settlements in terms of numbers. So the plan, as Sharon imagined it, was working. 
right? The only problem was that they're trying to erode the agreements that we've had with the Americans. And that's going to come and bite us because you see what's happening right now. You cannot rule. I think President Trump was a singularity when it came to a lot of things, especially to Israel. It's going to be very hard to reproduce that. Okay. And it's really not our fault. It's another 30,000 people in Pennsylvania, right? That's what it takes, Man. you know? President Trump was really... Uh... <laughs> No, but I'm saying um, it, it, we can't select and choose the president that the United States votes. I mean, I mean, it's not that the, the notion that we matter that much is a bit delusional, that that's that's going to well, make a Israelis difference. Israelis tend to see themselves as the, the center of the world. <laughs> well, I think you get a good perspective that we matter to the world. We're definitely not the center. But getting that very convenient sort of um, open book, if you think about the repercussions, even... President Trump said he wanted to cut a deal, okay? If he hadn't had another four years and he said, I'm going to get whatever all these Democratic presidents and Republican presidents wouldn't have gotten if he got reelected, and it wasn't a big margin and you took a look at the numbers, right? If he had gotten reelected, and he's not an ideologue as well, so he could, uh, you know, in a different kind of way, but he would said, I would cut a deal. I want to show the world that I can accomplish what Bill Clinton, George Bush, Obama, and no one could have accomplished that from 67. And I would have brought that deal. That's the way he talked. And I think that because, you know, his son-in-law is a smart guy, he said, don't put your efforts there yet. Let's go for some low-hanging fruit. And that's what you're going to create it. But the next step would have to say, well, you know what? I solved the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There's no other president who could say that. And he wanted that crown. So even Trump, I think, would have ended up dealing with that. From a different place, from a very sort of self-centered place. Yes. But, but when you're thinking about this is not a problem that's going away, and you have to think about it strategically. You can't fight the tactics every game. And I think it has values on all levels, and it's something you can't touch. Now, everything that's going on in Israel was fed. This is the ultimate result. In order to not get to that issue and discuss it and resolve it, not peace agreements, not peace talks. I'm not talking about that. That's not what I'm aiming at all. I think that's a pie in the sky. It's a pipe dream. But the hardcore settlers that now took over the party that I am a member of, they want the conversation to be everything about everything but that. Okay? They don't want to be faced with the truth. If I was in a debate with them and asked them, what's your end goal? And they say, well, we're going to stay there and we're going to kick the Arabs out. A lot of the people in the room wouldn't say, well, that's not what I subscribe to. I believe in our right. I believe in what we have to do. But This is not what I subscribe to. And they're hiding it behind a lot of stuff that has to do with the judicial system, a lot of stuff that has to do with sort of the rift that you're trying to tear between lefties and right-wingers. And it's just about not getting to that. They're trying to make it a culture war. So the issues are not going to be discussed in a way that's uh, strategic. And that's something that I personally intend to, uh, to change. And that's a topic for another episode as well. <laughs> Talking about I know. the future of the Likud. Oren, I really want to thank you for your time. It was really enlightening. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I'm sure that the audience also uh, learned so. a lot. I'm sure that we could fill in three to four more hours discussing, uh, you know, what was happening, but our time is up here. Well, it was my pleasure, and thank you, and thank you to everyone who listened. And it's a tidbit. You know, it's, uh, there's, I felt like we didn't cover a lot of stuff, but I can talk for hours, so uh, <laughs> we'll, take, we'll find another opportunity. Thank you so much, Kobe. Thank you, Oren, for uh, joining me, and uh, let's uh, pray for quiet days in Israel. Amen. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. 
If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day. Thank you.